0: That the motion call the Prime Minister.
1: We were given a referendum on whether to remain or leave the European Union. I will never send troops anywhere in a mission of that kind. Get us Hillary Clinton emails.
2: I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're
1: all insane.
2: Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hit in Perspective. This is Rob Greco. Good to be back. Hope everyone is doing well. Just a quick reminder, if you are getting value out of these episodes, please spread the word to friends and family. That would be much appreciated. I just want to say a quick message about the previous episode on the Victoria lockdown before getting into the episode. After I listened back to the episode, I'd like to clarify a few things for the record. I'm still new to interviews, so some things that are said live might come off strangely and without context, So, the first of those is that we mentioned that the average age of a COVID death is old. In Alberta, it's 82 years, while the average life expectancy is between 79 and 80. Now, neither Jules nor I believe in geronticide, that it's okay for an old person to die simply because they're old. The point was simply to raise a valid question, which is, What percentage of COVID deaths are deaths of individuals who are otherwise at high risk of passing away at a similar time because of their age and condition? And if this percentage is significant, what implications does this have for the measures sustained to save that life? People discuss this in terms of years of life lost, quality adjusted life years, QALY, or disability adjusted life years, DALI. But... This is something that the daily publication of Lives Lost simply fails to capture. For now, I won't get into discussing the results of these analysis, which are ongoing, but we have to keep this in mind when discussing lockdowns and saved deaths. The second thing is we spoke about the cost of lockdowns versus the benefit of saved lives. As I mentioned in my first COVID episode, one should always preface this discussion by acknowledging that the trade-off between the economy and suppressing the virus is a false trade-off. If the virus is rampant, the economy will naturally suffer. However, there is such a thing as grossly overreacting to the virus, which both Jules and I believe has definitely happened in Victoria. When, say, at the peak of the virus, ICU capacity was only ever at 3.2%, and most of the 22 weeks of lockdown occurred when ICU capacity was at much lower levels. Third, and lastly, I criticise the media for not allowing a proper, thoughtful discussion of some issues. Now, the obvious retort is, oh, the Murdoch press, they have set, they control 70% of print media. And yes, they do viciously attack Dan Andrews. But if you actually look at their commentary, most of it focuses on the need to open up businesses, botched hotel quarantine, and contract tracing. And that's to be expected. But my concern with the media, and including the Murdoch press, is the very little pushback against the logic of excessively long and harsh lockdowns. Let me give you two examples. The first one, if Victoria is locking down to prevent the healthcare system from being overrun, citing Dan Andrews' own reasoning, are the extreme measures taken, both in length and nature, not disproportionate in light of the fact that ICU capacity never exceeded 3.2%? The whole point of lockdowns is to flatten the curve to prevent the system from being overwhelmed. But if Victoria was never close to that, how can you still justify those measures? Another variation on this theme is that if we're concerned about overwhelming our system, presumably we're also concerned about the excess number of people who have died this year. But we now know that in the first seven months of the year, across Australian aged care, there were a thousand fewer deaths compared to last year. Of course, the lockdown has helped achieve this outcome, and it's possible that without some form of restrictions or lockdowns, those negative excess deaths could have drastically rebounded into thousands of positive excess deaths. And unfortunately, the government isn't in a position to perfectly turn the dials to achieve zero excess deaths year on year, no more, no fewer. But now knowing that the overreaction caused fewer deaths at the expense of shutting down the whole state, should there not be a gradual easing of restrictions? Otherwise, you commit yourself... ...to the strange unethical view that a life this year is more valuable than a life last year... ...without even taking into account the value of freedom, economic activity and everything else sacrificed to achieve that. Alternately, you think that this new baseline of lower deaths is what we should achieve every year... ...and accordingly agree to forms of lockdowns to achieve that. So, that's an ethical problem for people to ponder... And yes, after a double-check in The Herald Sun, The Age, The Guardian, and The ABC, I was spot on. There was actually very little discussion on these two themes. Now, all of this is not to say that there's no need for some type of restrictions, ideally restrictions that preserve as many civil liberties as possible. For example, it seems like restricting super-spreader of prone activity is sensible, but The binary option offered to Victorians between harsh lockdowns on the one hand and completely overrunning the system on the other hand is a false dichotomy. There's a whole spectrum of restrictions that could be effective in suppressing the virus that fall short of the harsh lockdown option, especially since there was already an initial lockdown to buy everyone some time to prepare. As Dr. Hans Kluge, uh, the WHO's regional director for Europe, has recently said, a proportional and targeted response is the way forward. And he later notes that lockdowns should be a very, very last resort. So that's all I'll say on that for now. So on to today's episode. Last week, there was a New York Post story of Hunter Biden emails, which suggested that Hunter tried to set up a meeting between a Ukrainian Burisma advisor, that's the company on which Hunter Biden was sitting on the board for, and his dad, the then VP, Joe Biden. Let's take a listen.
0: And Twitter facing criticism after limiting the reach of a New York Post story about alleged smoking gun emails. Uh, showing hunter biden introducing his father to a ukrainian uh, businessman
2: so this story has questions of tech censorship russian disinformation facebook and twitter interfering with democracy tech being too big their need to be regulated questions of fake news media all this stuff very juicy stuff wrapped into one let's get into it so first of all what happened Well, last Wednesday, October 14th, the New York Post published an article titled Smoking Gun Email Reveals How Hunter Biden Introduced Ukrainian Businessmen to VP Dad. It starts with, Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who is investigating the company, according to emails obtained by the Post. So allegedly what happened is Hunter Biden had dropped off his MacBook laptop to a computer repair store in Delaware. He then never bothered to pick it up. The store owner uh, eventually handed this to the FBI for investigation But he also copied some of the files onto his hard drive and then handed those to none other than Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon, who then leaked this to the New York Post. Then immediately after this started trending, I believe it was uh, two or three on Twitter, it was just going viral, Facebook and Twitter move in and censor the story. So Facebook limited the distribution of the post until it could be verified by, in air quotes, Independent fact checkers, whereas Twitter shut down the Twitter accounts of the press secretary of the White House, the Trump campaign account, and the New York Post account, and then prohibited the story from being shared via tweet or direct message. But then it later reversed this this decision once the once the article went viral. Classic Streisand effect: when you try censor something, it then becomes more popular than it would have otherwise been. Now, conservatives scream tech censorship. Uh, election meddling and an in-kind donation to the Biden campaign. Let's take a listen.
1: Look at the behavior of the big tech oligarchs who want to control the Biden administration. They immediately censored this information on Twitter and on Facebook. They locked down the Twitter account of the New York Post, a venerable and major American newspaper. They locked Kayleigh McEnany, the White House press secretary, out of her Twitter account. The big tech oligarchs have declared war on the Republican Party and conservatives, and I promise them, those in Silicon Valley, winter is coming.
2: So Congress has now issued subpoenas to Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey to testify over their censorship. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that Twitter did reverse its course. As I mentioned, uh, Jack Dorsey tweeted, Our communication around actions on the New York Post article was not great, and blocking URL sharing via tweet or DM with zero context as to why we're blocking. Unacceptable, says Jack so basically, they changed their policy against shared hacked materials so that content would no longer be blocked unless it was clearly shared by the hackers or individuals working in concert with them. The hacking info would now be marked with a warning label about its providence. But basically, Twitter just let the article uh, go back into circulation after it went viral as a result of the censorship, which is pretty funny. So, there are a few questions that we need to dive into. The first of those is, what do the emails actually mean? Well, if true, we still don't know if they are true, the emails would really just prove that Hunter Biden introduced a Burisma representative to his dad, then VP Joe Biden. One of the other emails, which reveals equity splits, uh, has a line which mentions, quote, 10 held by H for the big guy. So this raises two open questions. One is H Hunter and two is the big guy, Joe Biden himself. Why does all of this matter? Well, the first and more obvious thing is there's just a perception of corruption on the part of Hunter Biden trading on his dad's name, which is Like, when you think about it, it's bad for Hunter, not necessarily bad for Joe, although there is somewhat of a sour taste. Now, the second potential interpretation, and this is much more remote and yet to be proved, is that Joe Biden took financial gain in exchange for firing the Ukrainian prosecutor who was allegedly investigating Burisma at the time. So, you know, it's, it's a known fact that when... Biden was veep in 2016. He did pressure Ukraine into firing the country's leading prosecutor, Victor Shokin. Biden claims this was done because Shokin was corrupt. However, the prosecutor that Ukraine then appointed to replace Shokin, Yuri Lutsenko, had no legal background as a general prosecutor. Not much of a step up, I would have thought. And then so the allegation is that Biden meddled in Ukraine to benefit Burisma, uh, the company which Hunter did serve as a board member for. And then this whole charade gave rise to the context for Trump's impeachment, where Trump was found to have withheld foreign aid in exchange for an investigation into Biden. But again, even if these emails are true, they don't prove that second allegation, which is much further down down the chain. And they only really point to an organized meetup between a Burisma advisor and Joe Biden. So next question any journalist with integrity would ask is, are the emails real? Well, it was an ongoing investigation, but before that gets concluded, I think the best way to go about it is you would weigh the arguments each way. So In favour of them being true, and this is the big one, the Biden cap haven't actually claimed that the emails are fakes, nor that Hunter never dropped off his laptop at the computer store. If they were fake, I'd know about you, but I'd immediately say that. As The Hill reports, When initially asked about an email indicating that Joe Biden, as Vice President, met with an executive of Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company that was lavishly paying Biden's son, The Biden campaign's reaction was to check the former vice president's official calendar, after which the campaign first lamely said there was no notation of any such meeting and then meekly admitted that Biden might well have met with the Burisma executive. Now, There's also the fact that the computer store that Hunter allegedly dropped off the laptop at is a real store that has been operating for years, Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe came out and said there's no intelligence that supports the idea that, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop is part of some Russian disinformation campaign. And also the FBI did write to a congressman that it hadn't found any evidence of Russian disinformation, but it won't answer any questions, many more questions on the topic. Now, so those are the factors weighing in favor of it being real. What about weighing against it being real? Well, for starters, the Biden campaign said that Biden's official schedule doesn't show a meeting with the Burisma advisor, but if you really think about it, I'm not a corrupt guy, as you all know, but if I were corrupt and I were doing dodgy meetups with dodgy people about a dodgy subject, maybe, just maybe, I wouldn't put it in my official calendar if I were a crook. Of course, I'm not a crook, but that's probably not something I would do. Next thing, you know, there's the shady timing of it all. We've got the election coming up very soon. So, potentially, the leak is just to undermine Biden's campaign and get Trump elected. Uh, yeah, but like, duh, this happens all the time. Uh, you know, if you, if you do have dirt on the opposition, you're going to drop it at an opportune time that has the most chance of being effective to sway the election your way. So, that's not much of a big point for me. Uh, another factor against it is that Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon are incentivized to drop fake news against Biden to tip the election in their favor. So if you think you know Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon are greasy and not to be trusted, you wouldn't believe that the emails are real. Then there's the fact that more than 50 former senior intelligence officials signed a letter outlining their belief that this has, quote, all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Uh, Then there's the fact that intelligence community has been warned for months about Russian attempts to influence the election, yada, yada. And then there's also something that is quite interesting. Don't you think the story is a bit suspicious? Would Hunter Biden really be so reckless to drop off his laptop knowing that he had emails that could incriminate him and then potentially lead to his father's demise? Then again, he hasn't really denied that it was his computer, uh, and the computer store owner did confirm to New York Times reporters that the man identified himself as Hunter Biden. And the factor against that is that the store owner is actually legally blind, so he can't give the most reliable visual ID, to be completely honest. Anyway, point being, those are the factors against it. Ultimately, we don't yet know if the emails are true. But again, even if true... They don't prove much corruption on the part of Joe Biden, which is why this is the real issue, ladies and gentlemen. If they don't even incriminate Biden, why cover it up? Potentially the cover-up is actually the corruption. This is where things get really interesting because you have Facebook coming out, censoring the post, Twitter doing it. Non, uh, you know, Trump-hating and Biden-favorable parts of the press trying to censor the thing or ignoring it. So why are they all acting in concert? Why are they all, me- you know, making a concerted effort to repress the story? That actually reeks a little bit of corruption. Let's get into exactly what I mean by that. So the first is that there are some shady tech and Democratic Party optics. What do I mean by this? Well, for starters, the person who made this decision, Andy Stone, Facebook's policy communications officer, made the decision on Twitter where he said, while I will intentionally not link to the New York Post, I want to be clear that this story is eligible to be fact-checked by Facebook's third-party fact-checking partners. It's a bit of a tongue twister. In the meantime, we are reducing its distribution on our platform. Who is this, Andy Stone? You might be wondering, this guy happens to be a lifelong Democratic Party operative. He previously served as communications director for the House Majority PAC between 2012 and 2014. He was a press secretary for the Democratic California Senator Barbara Boxer between 2011 and 2012. He was also the press secretary for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, DCCC, between 2009 and 2011. Sounds a little bit compromised, if you ask me. There's also the fact that in October, Biden's transition team hired Facebook executive Jessica Hertz as its general counsel to oversee ethical issues. Again, pretty compromised. Also, in late September, Biden's tran- transition team hired Twitter director of public policy Carlos Monje as co-chair of Biden's infrastructure policy committee. Previously, Carlos Monge was the director of agency review on the team that prepared for a possible Hillary Clinton administration. Okay. Even if, even if there was, there's no proof that Biden contacted people working in his campaign who are ex Facebook, ex Twitter to tell people within Twitter and Facebook to suppress the article, even if that didn't happen, which there's no evidence that that happened. But just the optics alone of having some high-level Facebook executive and Twitter executive in your campaign and then Facebook and Twitter coming out in an unprecedented fashion and suppressing the article, that alone is dodgy, much much dodgier than the story that would be proved if we could verify the credibility of those emails. That's just one issue. There's actually another issue why this is problematic is because we have now all these talks of regulating tech, you know, tech's too big. There's talks of, you know, Section 230 being repealed, which basically gives immunity to tech platforms like Twitter and Facebook Uh, for legal claims against some of the content posted on their platforms you know so if you know i posted something defamatory um someone would be able to sue me but they couldn't uh, they couldn't sue the platform on which i made that defamatory uh tweet or post but there are now talks that if Facebook and Twitter have been moderating and regulating speech on their platform. They're no longer a platform, but they're now a publisher. So that could open them up to liability. Uh, you know, there, there are also talks now of—sorry, not talks—it actually happened last week. there's an anti-antitrust lawsuit brought against Google. Um, you know, Europe has already regulated big tech with uh, the GDPR. So, you know, if we're asking, if we're asking Congress, if we're asking government officials to regulate tech. Don't you think we would want to make sure that tech isn't in bed with the people who are regulating tech? Uh, you know, this was you know really passionately argued by Senator Haley uh, just this week. Let's take a listen.
1: This body is supposed to represent the people of this nation. This body is supposed to defend the people's interests, but for too long, this body has done the bidding of big tech. It has given tech lavish government handouts, and then look the other way while tech captured one government agency after another. Do you know a recent news report found that the FTC, the body in charge of enforcing, supposedly, much of our antitrust law and our competition law, that two-thirds of the FTC's employees have conflicts of interest related to tech. That's good old-fashioned government capture by big business, by the mega-corporations. And that's exactly what has been going on in Washington for years, right under the nose of the United States Senate. And if we're being honest, it's really no surprise, tech has spent outrageous sums of money, outrageous sums of money, to purchase influence in the capital of the United States. It is time for those days to end
2: so whether you get tech to clamp down on citizen speech or governments to clamp down on tech i'm very concerned about the fact that they they seem to be in bed with one another and they there's just a revolving door of crony capitalism where you know big tech executives go into a political party they come out and go into big tech the whole thing reeks of corruption i don't like where it's going So that's the first part, which is some dodgy tech and dem optics. How about the second component, which is that as soon as this article came out, there was pretty much immediately in unison from certain parts of the press and Democratic Party members to claim that this was an act of Russian disinformation. Let's take a listen.
1: Serious questions tonight about whether the Russians are using Rudy Giuliani to interfere in the U.S. presidential election. CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Markward is joining us. Alex, there are fears that what Giuliani is now... Pushing here in the United States could actually be part of Russia's latest and very massive disinformation campaign in the U.S. presidential election. Massive indeed, Wolf. We do know that it's a very active Russian campaign. That's according to the U.S. intelligence community, and that Rudy Giuliani already had open contact with a person that the U.S. has called an agent for the Kremlin. Now, we are being told by two people who've been briefed on uh, what the FBI is doing that they're looking into whether these unverified emails about That were published earlier this week by the New York Post about his business dealings in Ukraine and China are part of this bigger Russian disinformation effort in the 2020 election.
2: Democratic Senator Chris Murphy tweeted Joe Biden and all of us should be furious that media outlets are spreading what is very likely Russian propaganda. You know, apart from the fact that, you know, even if at best you could say the New York Post was something without evidence, aren't you also committing that crime by claiming it's Russian propaganda or Russian disinformation without evidence? These people are walking contradictions. And one can't help but notice the lingering remnants of Russiagate. I was thinking about this the other night. Can you imagine if your football team lost and you lost significantly, say by six goals, and you, you're the type of guy who blames it on the umps, right? Every decision went, went against you, and that was the reason for losing. Now, imagine if not only did you complain on the night that your team lost, but you did it the following day, you did it the following week, and you pretty much did it for the entire year until you battled this team next, even though the independent committee found that there was no evidence of the umps being shitty. Can you imagine how much of a pathetic football supporter you'd be? But this is pretty much what the Democrats have been doing. They alleged that Trump was in cahoots with the Russians. That was the whole premise for Russiagate. The Mueller report found that there was no evidence of collusion. Now you got to move on. Drop the idea that everything that goes against you is attributed to Russian disinformation. Now, of course, the natural retort to this is there has been Russian interference. And this is true. There's actually a lot of evidence of Russian bots and troll farms doing dodgy activity on Facebook. Uh, I think back in 2016, they organized two... Uh, different protests. There was one that was in favour of Sharia law, and then another one that was anti-Sharia law, and they quite strategically planned the protests on the same day in the same physical location. There's also more recent evidence of Russians you know, concocting BLM protests, which is which is interesting. So yes, it does happen, but the idea that the Russian interference has had a significant and overwhelming effect on people voting one way for an or another, is overblown. Firstly, the Mueller report found that there's no evidence that Trump was in cahoots with the Russians. Secondly, uh, the people who consume fake news are already on the extremes. Cognitive science test uh, Hugo Mercer argues in his book, Not Born Yesterday, I'm quoting, The majority of people who visited fake news websites weren't casual Republicans, but intense partisans. The 10% of people with the most conservative online info diets. These people were very unlikely to have turned from Hillary voters to Trump supporters. And the next reason is even if we acknowledge that the Russians have been uh, posting uh, fake posts and spending money on ads, all of these constitute a tiny percentage of all social media activity. For example, with ads, the Russians spent 100 to 160,000 US dollars on ads. Trump and Hillary collectively spent 81 million. And regarding content, the Russians posted about 80,000 pieces of content from January 2015 to August 2017. But in that same time, there were more than 11 trillion posts on Facebook. So when you do the math, The percentage of Russian activity constitutes a tiny fraction of all possible activity, which is why, with the evidence we have right now, the claims of Russian disinformation are grossly overblown. A new line that's popped up on Twitter in some independent journalist circles is, Russian disinformation is disinformation, which I think is really smart. Michael Tracy tweeted, What's funny is that claims of disinformation nowadays are usually themselves disinformation, an interesting and effective propagandistic inversion, which is easy enough to pull off when most of the media class does nothing but regurgitate evidence-free assertions. Matt Taheebe's substack, Facebook and Twitter's intervention, highlights dangerous new double standard. He writes, The Orwellian construct described in papers like The Times suggests that for tech executives, pundits, And Democratic Party officials alike, the lines between fake news and bad news, between actual misinformation and information that is merely politically adverse, have been blurred. So, I think that's something that we, as a society, need to do a better job of not uh, assigning everything as Russian disinformation merely because it will affect a preferred candidate which brings you to the next point on double standards. So, it is strange that you'll claim that certain info cannot be trusted if that info harms a particular candidate, but then in the same breath, you can say that other information must be told and the public must know about this if that happens to benefit a candidate. For example, Trump's tax returns, as Glenn Greenwald tweeted, We don't know how the New York Times and Rachel Maddow got hold of Trump's tax returns. Did so commit crimes to get and send them? Probably. Was a foreign government involved? Who knows? That we don't know that the story of the story doesn't mean we ignore the doc's contents. Spot on. Now, when the New York Times journalist David Barstow was asked why he doesn't care who leaked information to him on Trump's older tax returns, he had this to say.
0: You know, it's funny. People often, when there are conversations about whistleblowers, the conversations often framed around: Did they have noble intentions, or did they have some, you know, was a score settling or some some less than noble motive? I, from the years of doing this, I've found that sometimes whistleblowers with terrible motives uh, come forward with incredible documents, and I've also had times when whistleblowers with just the most perfect, pristine motives come forward and the documents are worthless. What really matters to me is is this information real and if so is it newsworthy?
2: Another example of the double standards is I don't know, the Steele dossier that caused the Mueller investigation is Matt Taibbi again.
0: The sudden decision by all these platforms to start establishing standards about Questions like hacked material, leaked material, doxing material, material that can't be verified. Uh, that's very convenient because the last four years, the news landscape has been just packed full of what they call hack and leak stories. Um, and I think the Steele dossier is, is just one big example of a completely unverified story that rocketed around the news landscape for quite a long time and there was never any inter- intervention. But the whole four-year Trump presidency has been full of these kinds of stories and there's never been any intervention. So what this looks like to conservatives is it it just looks like selective censorship to them. Mm -hmm. And I can understand the the, uh, trying to uphold some standards. But the problem is, if you don't do it evenly, then it, it. It just sends a message that it's politicized.
2: And if you really think that hack and leak documents should never be discussed by the media until they can be independently verified, whatever that means, who is this independent verification company that's going to be 100% correct in their analysis? It's I don't like the idea of that, but, you know. Even if that were going to be our standard, that we always get things independently verified, that would work against a lot of hack and leak documents, which have been in the public interest and have done amazing things uh, in exposing corruption over time. Think about you know, the Panama Papers, the Pentagon Papers, the Snowden leaks. All of these were hack and leak documents that were, were in the public interest. So you know, what all of this boils down to you know the the end result of all of this is at least what i'm getting is the information that can't be trusted is only said if it harms our preferred candidate but you know the public must know is only said when it benefits our preferred candidate it's a complete double standard um you know another little twist on this is a lot of the people who are saying you know we shouldn't really be publicizing this because because this is exactly what happened to Hillary Clinton's emails. That these people failed to remember that those emails against Hillary Clinton, although they didn't prove much, they were real. <laughs> they were real. Uh, you know, it's as um you know a Bill Clinton appointed federal judge, John Cothul, ruled in the Democrats' failed lawsuit against WikiLeaks. Obviously, the organization that that uh, leaked the Hillary Clinton docs. Um, is that. It found that those documents were of public concern and therefore protected by the First Amendment. And in addition to this double standard, the reason why it matters is because, again, to quote Matt Tahibbe, is, you know, it matters that the entire mainstream press is non-reporting the Biden emails because these are the people likely to be charged soon with challenging a Biden administration. If they're already lying on his behalf... It makes them politicians, not press. If you're wondering, all the people that I've actually quoted in this episode, Matt Dehebe, Glenn Greenwald, um, Michael Tracy, all these people, they aren't Trump supporters. It isn't about being left or right, pro-Trump against Biden, pro-Biden against Trump. It's simply asking for some consistency and some semblance of objectivity in the mainstream media press, so we can have some semblance of a functioning democracy, so just to conclude the episode, there are just some final thoughts that you know one, even if the emails aren't true, the optics alone of Joe Biden serving as VP but also having his son sit on a board of a Ukrainian gas company, which the u s were looking into. It's a bit strange. It it there's just a perception of corruption. That's the first point. The second point is you know, it's funny how even if the emails are true, again, we don't know, but they would prove that's they would incriminate Biden of something that is far below far below the corruption and nepotism of Trump. Look at him. He has God knows how many of his family members now who he's appointed to positions of power. This is just an openly nepotistic president. And yet, it's strange how the media has disproportionately focused on Biden solely because of the cover-up. Whereas, Teflon Don, if you will, can get away with it because he's so open about it. Something to think about. And the last thing is, the media needs to set a standard protocol. This inconsistency is driving everyone crazy, everyone crazy. It's doing no good. We need to either decide that one everyone withholds comment until an independent third party verifies the documents. Of course, this runs into the problem, who do you trust to verify the documents? Or well, the second approach, which is one that I would prefer, is the press should just be free to comment. It should be open slatter, argue for and against its veracity and let people decide for themselves. Otherwise, we're always going to run into the problem of inconsistent application of these so-called standards of what can be trusted and what can't be trusted. And on that note, that's where I'll end today's episode. As always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I think they're all insane. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.